from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll learn what a mental health walk-in clinic for children has seen in its first year in Milwaukee. We'll hear from the outgoing chancellor at UW Parkside about what that campus needs to help students succeed. Higher education is an investment in our future and something that I hope that our colleagues in the legislature uh, will continue to invest in. Uh, It's worth it. Plus, we'll learn about an opportunity for young people in Milwaukee to learn the ropes of podcasting. I want our students to really understand that you have power in the palm of your hand and podcasting and using audio technology and tools is really powerful. What you say is really powerful. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. Today marks one year since the Craig Yabuki Mental Health Walking Clinic opened. It's on the Children's Wisconsin-Milwaukee campus, and it's the first of its kind in the state. Licensed therapists, social workers, and clinic assistants are available seven days a week to give same-day care for children ages 5 to 15. So far, they've had over 950 visits from patients in the Milwaukee area. To learn more about the services the clinic offers and its impact so far, Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski speaks with Tammy McClough, the clinic's manager. So the clinic is marking its one-year anniversary since opening, and it's a first-of-its-kind clinic in the state that fills a critical gap in care for kids experiencing a mental health crisis. So can you specify what this gap is and how it's historically impacted children and their families? So prior to the clinic opening, many of the kids that come into the clinic would be seen in the emergency room. And so this is a level of care that they can come in and not have to have the long waits in the waiting room and then, or in the emergency room. And when kids are in the emergency room, they get resources and they get care and assessments. But if they're here at the walk-in clinic, we can also give them those resources. We assess safety and then we can also have a counseling session with them. So can you share more about the process of this clinic and, and maybe walk us through an example of what people can typically expect or what it can look like when a child comes in for care along with a guardian? So if the child comes in, they're in crisis and we let the family decide what the crisis is. So we do not say, oh, that's that's not big enough or yeah, that's too small. The family is in crisis. They're needing some services right now. So they come, they register, we give them some assessments and then they meet with the social worker. So the social worker will meet with them, kind of find out why they're here, uh, assess some safety, determine the correct level of care and what resources they need. Then the social worker will collaborate with the therapist and then the therapist will meet the family and provide either a, a session that could be with the kid, it could be with the child and the family. And if a child is at safety risk, we would then complete a safety assessment and then review that with the family. You, of course, don't define what a crisis is for a child and their family or guardians, whoever is their support system. But when would you actually encourage a guardian to bring a child into the clinic? Because sometimes people do have the assumption that they need to wait for a crisis, however they define it. 
Right. I mean, I would say that families should bring a kid in, a child in if they are in crisis. If there's a change in behavior, if they're worried about something, if a child expresses any type of safety concerns, if they express wanting to hurt themselves, wanting to hurt somebody else, then that child is saying that they need some more help and support. And so I would bring them in there. A crisis could also be a change in behavior. Um, maybe there's more uh, irritability. Maybe there's struggles at school with peers, with academics, um, changes in, in some of that normal daily living, like they're not eating well, they're not sleeping well. Those are all things that a child is not doing well. So if a child is struggling, they can definitely come to the mental health walking clinic. Yeah, so things, like you said, they range from feelings of increased anxiety, stress, panic attacks, trouble focusing, mood disorders, hyperactivity, or even a lack of interest in family or social activities. So there's a big gamut of things that can occur in a kid's life. But with this walk-in clinic, I think it's also important to specify what services you're not able to offer. So can you explain where you can step in and where it would occur that you need to refer them to other places or people? So if a child is actively suicidal, like maybe they have taken taken extra medication, then they need to go to the ED. So if a child cannot stay safe, they need to go to the emergency department. If a child also um, has medical needs or an altered state, then they need to go to the emergency room. We are not a medical facility. We do not have any medical staff. We are all mental health clinicians. So if there is a medical need, they would need to go to either the emergency department or urgent care. And medical needs also would encompass like medication changes or laboratory services Correct. too, right? Right. We're unable to do any anything with medication. Then they would need to contact their pediatrician. So since we're coming up on a year, what's it been like for you? What kind of Issues are you seeing in the kids that come through your doors? Is something more prevalent than others? Uh, help share some insights. So when we first opened, we didn't know what was going to come through the doors. We didn't know what population. We didn't know ages. Um, we did a lot of planning. And so now we're coming up with the year anniversary. We have our average age is age 12, which surprised a lot of us. Um, and that's been consistent since we've opened. Uh, we see a lot of anxiety, panic attacks, school struggles academically, socially, um, and that's been very consistent, especially with the start of the school year. We had a mild dip over the summer, but then once school is in session, we, we've ramped back up as far as our census. So we've seen a lot more anxiety. And the other thing that's been surprising is that we have been able to work with the majority of the kids that have come through in establishing a safety plan and not having to refer them to a higher level of care. Um, currently, it's about 5% of the kids that we've seen have needed to be referred to a higher level of care, such as inpatient. Kids can come in and we make a referral to either partial hospitalization or intensive outpatient care, but they haven't needed to go inpatient. So that's been a really a really exciting piece of, of our clinic. We've also seen um, over 900 kids. So that's been exciting too, that we've been able to help so many kids and families. You mentioned that it was surprising that the average age was 12. Can you share a little more why that is surprising to you? 
Um, I guess I thought we would see more uh, adolescence if I think about like a crisis mental health clinic. But then if I really do reflect back, I'm like, these are middle schoolers and um, middle school's tough. And then with COVID, there's also a loss of of a few years socially and academically. So it does make sense then that middle school would be an age that would, would need a little bit of support and help. We've also seen kids young. Um, we've seen, you know, some six-year-olds and up. So that's also been surprising of how many littler kids we've seen walk through the clinic. What's the max age that you'll help treat? So the ages we see are five to 18. If there is a child that's 19 and they're still in high school, then we will offer uh, resources and supports and a counseling center. It's just a lot of our resources are geared towards adolescence. That's where our specialty is. And do these children typically have mental health providers with their families to begin with, or are you often their first point of contact? 54% of the kids that come into the clinic do not have a mental health provider. So part of their visit with us is to set them up with either an outpatient provider or um, maybe they're going back to their pediatrician because Children's does have mental health providers in their pediatrician offices. We also have mental health providers in the schools. So we'll look at hooking them up with some type of resources when they come into the come into the walk-in clinic. Even though kids come into the walk-in clinic that do have therapists, it's okay that they're here. It's because they, you know, maybe they're on the wait list as far as they need to see their clinician and their clinician is on vacation or they see their clinician every other week and um, this is an off week. So even if they do have a mental health provider, they're able to come to our clinic. We talked a bit about the ages and other demographics like that of who you're seeing, but do you know where the patients are coming from? Is it largely from the Milwaukee area or does it reach far beyond that? The majority of our clients do come from Milwaukee, Waukesha, and Racine, but we've seen some families as far as Chicago and as far as Manitowoc. This children's clinic was the result of taking community feedback and listening to families saying what they needed more options of. So now that it's been a year, what's the feedback been like that's been shared with you? The feedback has been very positive. People are really happy that we are here, that kids can get the right care at the right time in the right place. I mean, there's still work to be done. We would still like to, you know, add services to our our, our clinic. Um, obviously, we would like to have some medical services. But overall, people have been very pleased that they could just come in, that they don't need an appointment. And, you know, maybe a kid had a bad day at school and they're able to bring the child in rather than waiting until the next day when maybe the pediatrician is available or their therapist or a school school supports. So families have been very happy to utilize our services. It's probably also important to establish in young children that seeking help is okay you know, help to reduce that stigma from the very beginning so that the hurdles that we may face as adults dealing with our own issues, maybe that's not in place already for this next generation. And I think maybe that is also why we're seeing an increase in uh, children seeking help is that maybe there is more discussion about mental health and kids are kids and families are looking at taking care of their mental health and seeking services when they can. 
So what did you have in place initially when you first opened? And what have you learned over the course of this first year that you have since adjusted after being in operation? Were there any major changes or are there long-term goals that maybe you've reassessed and are looking to be more efficient at or meet greater needs? Since we've opened, I think we're all surprised that we haven't needed to access inpatient services as often as we had. I think we were expecting to have several referrals for inpatient, and we've been able to work with families and establish safety and discharge them home. So that's been one thing that surprised me. I mean, we we have been impacted by the staffing shortage, so we would obviously like to have more staff. But our workflows and our staffing per shift has been what we had started with and has been successful. And as we grow, we would like to add services and and we, we plan on eventually moving into a new space. And then as we get new space, see more kids and families. But it's really nice when you have a family come through and you see them in crisis and you're able to provide them education, you're able to provide them support and help them navigate the system. And by the time they leave, they're, you can see less stress on them. They're either laughing and walking out the door. That's been very rewarding just to help them and guide them through the mental health process because I know that that's overwhelming and to give them hope and just to let them know that they're not alone. Well, Tammy, thank you so much for joining me today and congratulations on your first year. <laughs> thank you. Tammy McClough is the manager of the Craig Yabuki Mental Health Walk-In Clinic on the Children's Wisconsin-Milwaukee campus. She spoke with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski. You can find more information about the clinic at wuwm.com. Growing older isn't easy. Aging can bring on a host of issues, not least of which is bigotry. Ageism is a pervasive issue that is so baked into our culture it can be difficult to spot. Jen Khan Pettigrew is working to change these attitudes. She's a clinical professor at UW-Milwaukee in the Office of Applied Gerontology, as well as an AARP Disrupt Aging Classroom Facilitator. This program challenges students' perceptions of aging and pushes them to recognize how ageism can negatively affect everyone in our community. Khan Pettigrew joins me now to talk about her work. Jen, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. Thank you for having me. In so many ways, aging is kind of the goal. You know, we do all of these things to extend our lives. But when we get to what should be this ultimate goal, we're met with the realities of what aging means in our culture. How would you say our culture views aging? Well, our culture definitely projects the image that aging is bad. There's ageism that's prevalent in our society in many different forms. And if you look at the media, you'll see that most of the time it's geared toward people under 50, when in reality, people over 50 are spending more or (laughs) the same amount of money on products and services. You know, there's intentional ageism in our society where people are actually, like I said, portrayed negatively in the media. 
are, if you look at greeting cards in our society, if you try to look for a card in the, you know, at Walgreens or other, other places, if you haven't really paid attention before, you'll notice that most uh, birthday cards are really, really ageist portray people as um, having wrinkles, memory loss, you know, they're over the hill, quote unquote, or their body parts are sagging. Um, and there's a lot of negative jokes about aging that are also self-deprecating jokes and that perpetuates internalized ageism. So as we look at ageism more generally, how do we see that come out culturally? How do we see that manifest itself in the way we look at other people and the way that we look at ourselves? Excellent question. You know, as I was saying, there's so much unintentional ageism that we just have these generalizations and, you know, we think of older adults as uh, maybe being hard of hearing, being slow drivers, you know, those stereotypes that we hear a lot. We hear that older adults might live in nursing homes or do live in nursing homes. There's a generalization that most do when actually only 2% of older adults live in nursing, skilled nursing facilities, which I think is a really interesting statistic. And I think that we look at older adults as one large homogenous group and don't look at their individual experiences and multidimensional selves. And that contributes to the perpetuation of stereotypes as well. If somebody has an experience from the time they're one-year-old to 20 years old, those are those experiences are going to be a very different. And that same thing happens between in somebody's lifetime, say when they're 50 to 70 or 70 to 90 even. And these messages that we receive and these, these assumptions and stereotypes, they are internalized. So internalized ageism means believing the ageist messages and assumptions about older adults and attributing them to ourselves and to others, attributing forgetfulness to aging and making statements like I'm having a senior moment when forgetting something or I'm getting so old when you're having a physical ailment. And, you know, those things aren't necessarily because of aging. So I think that the internalized ageism really affects us. Research has actually shown that it has. There have been studies that show that people who have better positive self-perceptions of aging that are measured up to 23 years earlier in their lives actually live 7.5 years longer than those with less positive perceptions of aging. So it really shows that how we think about aging can actually impact our experience with it. Sure. Now, you're part of a program through AARP, this Disrupt Aging course. Can you tell me a bit about that and and how it deals with these cultural and personal perceptions of aging? Yeah, so the Disrupt Aging Classroom is a curriculum that covers five themes and it includes interactive activities for college students. So it's actually open and free to any higher education institution. The five themes that the Disrupt Aging Curriculum covers are describing demographic trends in aging, defining and discussing examples of ageism, recognizing older adults as multidimensional individuals, examining students' personal stake in the aging trend, and also identifying opportunities stemming from the aging trend, possibly in careers and other opportunities. And we um, assess students' perceptions prior to the curriculum and after the curriculum, and it has been shown that their attitudes do change and they're able to really have a different perspective about older adults after being a part of it. 
As you mentioned, you also work with gerontology more generally. And a, a big part of this work seems to be about not just talking about cultural perceptions of aging, but also challenging the ways in which we are ageist. What are the ways that we can challenge our own ageism and then raise awareness about its impact? I think once we start paying attention to the ageism that's prevalent in our culture and then paying attention to our own thoughts about ourselves and our you know, ageist, our internalized ageism that's happening, once you see it and you're aware of it, you'll see it everywhere. And so I think that paying attention to that can really make a difference. Aging is a lifelong process that we all experience. And ageism is actually the one form of discrimination that we're all likely to experience in our lifetime. So you know, we can all fight against ageism if we become aware of it and really try to change our language, our perceptions, and the messages that we're receiving about aging. What are some of the ways we can do that? What is some common language that we might switch up to make sure it isn't ageist? That's a really good question. So there are several terms such as the term elderly is used very frequently. And many older adults don't you know, have a good connotation with that word. So I suggest taking the L-Y off of that word and using the word elder instead um, just in general, calling things old or people old, you know, old has a connotation that describes things that are no longer needed or used or being discarded. So instead, you could use the word older, such as older adults. Also, the medical term geriatric is used often to refer to older adults. And again, it is specifically a medical term. And so using that as a more general term for older adults um, really has more of a ne negative connotation and associates getting older with needing medical interventions. Also, when communicating with older adults, um, it's good to always convey respect in your communication, use your regular tone of voice, remain aware of your nonverbal communication. I often have heard people infantilizing older adults by using the terms honey or sweetie. Um, which can really be offensive and make older adults feel, again, infantilized. And instead, it's good to know, ask the older adult what they prefer to be called, what name they prefer to be used. Also, speaking directly to the older adult versus the person who's accompanying them. And always using a person-centered approach and remembering that not all older adults have the same experiences and are multidimensional. It's definitely difficult, I think, from the outside looking in uh, as someone who is a younger person, but my mother is an older adult and I have gone to medical appointments with her. I've been in situations where we're dealing with some authority and there can be a tendency to infantilize older adults for whatever reason, even though you know, she's a very capable person. She is a well-educated person by chance. How do we dissect these tendencies inside of ourselves? What are the ways in which we can view them, take a step back, and change that behavior? When you hear yourself using a term that's ageist or infantilizing toward an older adult, you should take a step back and reframe that message and 
repeat the message in a way that isn't ageist. Um, it's okay to make mistakes, to trip up, but you know that's the way that we learn how to change the messages, change all of the isms in society. You know, people make mistakes, and to become aware of them and challenge them in ourselves and in others is the way that we can move forward. All right. Well, Jen, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing your work. Thank you so much for having me. Jen Khan Pettigrew is a clinical assistant professor at UW-Milwaukee in the Office of Applied Gerontology. She's also an AARP Disrupt Aging Classroom Facilitator. We spoke last year. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. In about 20 minutes, we'll tell you about a program that's teaching young people in Milwaukee about the power of podcasting. But first, we'll hear from the outgoing chancellor of the most racially diverse UW school on how they ensure student success. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. University of Wisconsin Parkside's longtime leader is stepping down this year. Debbie Ford has been chancellor of the Kenosha area campus for 14 years. Parkside is the most racially diverse UW school, and it also serves a large share of low-income and first-generation students. As a first-generation college student herself, Ford has focused on improving student success during her time at Parkside. WUWM education reporter Emily Files speaks with Ford about those efforts, including a plan to increase the number of students graduating from Parkside by 50 percent. The University of Wisconsin Parkside celebrated its 50th anniversary. Uh, We are the youngest university in the UW system, and we celebrated our 50th anniversary in 2018-19. Following that, we implemented our new strategic framework 2025 with our bold goal uh, to increase the number of graduates by 50% by 2025. And our benchmark was about 800 per academic year. So we're looking at the total of undergraduates and graduate students um, here at UW Parkside. So a benchmark of about 800. Our goal is to get to 1,200. And this past academic year, the 2021-22 academic year, uh, we awarded 1,000 degrees. Uh, so we're halfway to that benchmark. Um, and that's a combination of the graduates from August, December, and May. Uh, so making exceptional progress. And for the listeners today, the uh, for three years in a row, the highest number of graduates. So it's increasing every year at UW Parkside, even with the impacts of a global pandemic. Uh, So things are going the right direction at UW Parkside. So that's not easy to do. I mean, enrollment is falling at 
pretty much every UW university uh, aside from Madison. So um, what have you done? What have you found about what the barriers are to get students into college and to get them to graduation? And what have you had to change to um, get more students to the finish line? Yeah, so great questions, right? I'm going to start with the completion side. It's one of the things that we knew we had to do at UW-Parkside was to help more of our students who enrolled to complete. And that is what we are seeing in our higher graduation rates, um, as well as higher number of graduates. Emily, we also enroll a number of transfer students. About 50% of our graduates uh, started at UW-Parkside as a transfer student. And so we have great pathways uh, with our two-year partners, Gateway Technical College and Milwaukee Area Technical College and the College of Lake County in Illinois. And of course, our partner UW institutions, a few of them enroll here. We have also implemented a number of what they call student success strategies uh, that work across higher education. And we're getting those to scale um, and we're seeing the results of that. Um, in terms of enrollment, we too are seeing a decline, particularly in our undergraduate students. And what we're very concerned about here in the Racine-Kenosha area is the decline in college going um, and how the pandemic has really impacted that. We see that we have a robust economy and more students have opportunities uh, to go right from a high school education to work. And uh, so we're very concerned about that and, and are working very closely with our K-12 partners and our other higher ed partners to reverse these trends. And we hope that it's just a COVID hangover and that that will reverse. Um, but we're also working to make sure that students don't see it as either or, either I go, to, I go on to post-secondary ed or I work. What we have to do is have pathways where they can do both. Um, so number of initiatives here at UW Parkside, phenomenal teamwork across our faculty and staff and a real commitment uh, to student success. And that's what's driving um, our results. What have you done to, you said that really, you know, it is about enrolling more students, but really what you've had to focus on is completion and retention of students. So what have you done to increase retention numbers, um, if that has been the case? It, it certainly has. And so a number of things. So I, let me go back in time. When I first started at Parkside in 09, the university had applied for a Title III grant uh, from the federal government. The focus of that grant was to improve student retention. And that really served as a catalyst uh, for the work that we needed to do. Uh, one of the things that we found with a number of our students is that they were taking 12 credits an academic year when we know that it, you need 15 credits per semester, I mean, excuse me, 12 credits per semester. Um, and you need 15 each semester to earn that 30 that you need to stay on path for your 120 credit degree program. So we launched an initiative called 15 to Finish um, or 30 to Thrive um, and really encourage students to enroll in those 15 credits. And we set that intention. Um, for our students. And we see more students taking more credits, which helps them to finish in four years. One of the other things we learned by looking at how students progress through their degree programs is that um, college math, college level math courses were a problem for them. 
and so we have changed how we deliver uh, math at UW Parkside. We have now math pathways. And so the courses that the students are required to take are more aligned uh, with the majors that they are choosing. And what that means is not every student is gonna take college algebra because it's not required for their degree program. In addition with math, uh, we have changed how do we how we deliver those entry level math courses, and we no longer have remedial math. Um, and part of that was working with our K twelve partners to help them help them see what we were seeing in terms of levels of preparation. Our K twelve partners, high school partners, have changed how they deliver math, and that is improving the students' readiness at UW Parkside. And then two other things I'll mention: we have uh, hired more academic advisors and implemented a new advising model. So for first year students, they are advised in a central, centralized advising center um, and meet with their academic advisors throughout their academic year. And then once they declare their major, uh, we now have academic advisors and faculty advisors in each of our colleges uh, to continue that continuity for our students. This past year, UW-Parkside was awarded its, its second Title III grant, um, again, to further enhance our efforts around student retention and persistence and completion. And we have hired success coaches uh, as another a group of students to support, I mean, another group of professionals to support our students. And so we're in our first year of that implementation, and we believe this will just further enhance our retention, success, and uh, completion initiatives. Yeah. So, what has the what's happened with the retention rates? When I came to Parkside, it was fifty eight percent for first first to second year, first time full time freshmen. Okay, almost every year. Well, I mean, this it took about four years for us to get on a good path, but almost every year since it's been over seventy percent. And, but we realize 70% is not good enough. So we're striving to get that even higher um, and would like to be above our peers and closer to 80%. So we slipped a little bit in pandemic, but we're back up um, over 70%. And we're seeing that um, for our underrepresented students as well, because we look at our data um, in terms of race and ethnicity, in terms of gender, in terms of age. So we really look at it and see where there are maybe groups of students that may need more support um, or, or maybe even less support. So those are a few things that we're doing. Tell me more about within the different demographic groups, what's what's been happening with these initiatives, um, because Parkside, you often talk about how Parkside is um, one of the most diverse, if not the most diverse UW campus um, I think you say a, around 60% first generation. What have you seen in the graduation and retention efforts with the underrepresented students? Yeah, so here at UW Parkside, our distinctiveness is really who we serve. And so you're right, 55 to 60% of our students are first in their family to go to college and to earn a degree. 37% of our students identify as a student of color. And this is the highest percentage in the UW system, uh, right behind UW-Milwaukee, um, our sister institution. And we are the first UW 
campus uh, to be recognized as a, an emerging Hispanic serving institution with just under 20% of our students identifying as Hispanic students. But what are we seeing in terms of the retention and completion rates for um, our underrepresented students particularly? Um, we are certainly seeing growth. Pandemic, we did see some setbacks. So let's be honest, we've all um, had setbacks and, and challenges, but we're seeing some rebounds from that. The greatest growth certainly is in our Hispanic student population, both in terms of enrollment, in terms of retention, and in terms of completion. Um, African-American students, we actually are seeing a little bit of growth right now, which we're really pleased with, um, but we have lost some ground there. And we are doing some you know, continued efforts, both with our success coaches, both with the work in our Office of Multicultural Student Affairs uh, to really help um, our African-American students uh, succeed um, and, uh, and, and then also help with the enrollment. We're seeing some enrollment declines in this population and we're working with our K-12 partners and our uh, two-year partners here as well. So UW schools are struggling with enrollment um, and the system has struggled to convince Republican lawmakers to increase state funding. So and, and there's also this perception of um, that I think is growing among young people that uh, they're just worried about going into debt for college and whether it'll be worth it. So what do you think UW schools need to do at this point? to be successful or even to survive in this current climate? Well, that, there's a lot in that question. So let me talk about what I think we need to do and what we are doing um, as universities and, and certainly university leaders. Um, first and foremost, we need to continue to talk about um, the value of higher education and particularly public higher education. My experiences as an undergraduate transformed my life. It opened doors to opportunities that I didn't think would, would be available to me as a first-generation college student. And we need to continue to amplify these opportunities. And today, we are in a knowledge economy. We need to, and, and things are changing so fast and so rapidly um, in our economy that we need to make sure that students have the knowledge, skills, and values to be competitive, not just today, but well into the future. And as we work with our faculty and our alumni um, and our students and our staff to tell those stories about what it's really like um, and, and the values of public higher ed, I think that's so important. Higher education is an investment in our future. Um, and something that I, again, hope that our colleagues in the legislature uh, will continue to invest in. Uh, it's worth it. Uh, the return on investment is, is significant because you see it in the lives of our students. So could you talk about your decision to leave Parkside um, and what your hopes are for the next leader of the school? Yeah, so great question. So it is certainly a bittersweet decision. Yeah. Um, to leave UW Parkside, but I have the opportunity to go home. And so I'll be serving as chancellor at Indiana University Southeast uh, starting on July 1st. And that is literally across the river from where I grew up uh, in Louisville, Kentucky. And part of that service region for IU Southeast is the greater Louisville area. Uh, so I am certainly looking forward to 
you know, the next challenges to make an impact both in the community and certainly in student success. And what do I hope for the next leader of UW Parkside? My hope is that uh, my successor uh, will take UW Parkside to even higher heights. Uh, this university has a bright future ahead um, and does such important work uh, for our community, um, for our state, uh, for our region, and uh, certainly for the students that we have the honor and privilege of serving and educating each day. Uh, so let's go higher, UW Parkside. Debbie Ford is the outgoing chancellor of UW Parkside in Kenosha. Ford is leaving at the end of this school year for a similar leadership position at Indiana University Southeast. She spoke with WUWM's education reporter, Emily Files. Podcasts have become increasingly popular, and for many people, they're a part of daily life. Ahead, we'll tell you about how a local podcaster is helping set young people up for success in the podcasting world. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. A Milwaukeean is teaching young people how to start their own podcasts. The program is called Brilliant Voices. Its founder, Mawan J. Thompson, wants to help Milwaukee's black and brown youth take control of their narratives. In the program, Thompson introduces students to recording, editing, and monetizing their podcasts to help jumpstart a career in media. He shares more about Brilliant Voices with Lake Effect's Mallory Chang. Mwanja, can you tell me a bit about Brilliant Voices? What are the students learning in the program? Brilliant Voices, um, really our goal is to um, teach on three pillars. Um, the first pillar is audio. So everything audio, you learn the soundboard. You learn how to use this very mic I'm talking on now, how to set it up, what software to use. I mean, there's so many different software that's out there. I mean, you have GarageBand, Logic, so many different pieces of software. My favorite is GarageBand. It's simple, simple tool to use. Um, so they learn all of that, how to record, how to get levels, um, how to edit and chop things up, get make sound bites, even a little music production as well, too. And then we go into entrepreneurship where we talk about just some real basic core principles of entrepreneurship. My main focus is usually um, uh, marketing. But we, we talk about how to get an LLC, uh, how to start a, a real simple business plan. What is a lean canvas model, uh, which now entrepreneurs are using a lot more now. And then we get into Web3, which is the last pillar, which is the newest pillar that we added um, after kind of studying Web3 technology and cryptocurrency and, um, and really uh, looking into virtual reality and augmented reality. I wanted our students to learn that because the 
the students that uh, the target market of the students that I have are coming from poor and uh, disenfranchised communities. And I want them to make sure they get a leg up in learning that technology. So we threw that into our pillars as well, too. And the podcast space is moving towards that. Now, our listeners are getting a different audio experience through virtual reality. And I want our kids to know that. This space is so fast paced and a lot of innovative stuff is coming out of it. And there are so many mediums out there for storytelling. You just listed some mediums with virtual reality. I even think of like videos, YouTube, using other digital mediums in that way. But why focus specifically on podcasting and students' voices or music production? The startup cost is relatively inexpensive. Most of our students have a laptop or a cell phone or an iPad. You're already a producer right there if you have those um, those pieces of technology. And so all you have to do is really just go to your favorite app, even if you don't have GarageBand or Logic or those programs or FL Studios, which is one of the first programs that I ever used when I was starting out in high school, um, middle school. And all you have to do is turn on your, your camera and just start talking. And so I think that's just really the easiest way to really to start storytelling. And so I want our students to really understand that you have power in the palm of your hand and podcasting and using audio you know, technology and tools is really powerful. What you say is really powerful. And then capturing those stories um, from different communities, um, they can just go out. They don't have to show faces. They can just capture voices and um, the emotion that you can get from just capturing someone's voice is powerful. Um, one of the things I do talk about as well, too, is that with podcasting, you can use that as a tool of history. A lot of us, especially from poor and disenfranchised communities, we don't know our history. So why not start your history now? Start. You can do something super simple by just interviewing your parents or if you have your grandparents in your life or uncles, interview them. Keep that in the cloud or keep that in a safe storage. And then when you get older and your kids grow up or, you know, if you adopt whatever you plan on doing, you can turn their voices on and your kids can get a, a glimpse of history by listening to their voice. And that's something they can keep for the rest of their lives. So audio is super powerful and it can really have some historic value if you do it correctly. That's how I got into audio, using my notes app, interviewing my grandparents. Awesome. Yeah, just as a way to remember them, but just, you know, it's a nice memory to have in my own family. This is a program that's a part of the social arm of your podcast network called Audio Moguls Media, where you also co-host the podcast Young, Black, and Opinionated. And you've been in the audio production world for about over 10 years now. And I'm just wondering, Wanjie, how did you get into podcasting of all spaces, of all digital spaces? Yeah, so I will say my audio journey started with um, music production and recording my friends in college. And I will even take it a step back. High school is when I really started um, in a little bit of middle school where um, my friend, we would do projects at school and I would always take on the the rapping or the, the music projects. I'm like, I have FL Studios and I can just go ahead and record you all. We can do a song together. I can make the beat. I can do it. Let's do it. From there, from from taking that from high school, middle school, high school to college or um, where we would uh, do projects, marketing projects where we had to maybe do a voiceover, things like that. I was able to do that with my little uh, Mac 2009 MacBook. Um, and that's when things changed a little bit after college is when I me and my friends, we decided to start a podcast. And that's when I started to learn the ins and out of podcasting and starting to learn how to create a show and start to really understand 
what it is to create segments and do segues and feed off of your co-hosts and then really build a, a community around your show and really talk to your audience. And so um, it's it's really beautiful to see how audio can really just take hold and really change the way people do things. I listen to podcasts all the time now, and it's really a part of my my day. And Audio Moguls Media has been based in Milwaukee this entire time, and you're all dedicated to helping specifically Black and Brown creators amplify their voices and their stories. Why did you want to start a podcast network based here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, of all places in the world? It's really, even with the with the start of Brilliant Voices, when I started to hear about the Kia boys, that's when I really started to take hold of, and girls, hold of what's going on in our community and really become more responsible for what's happening in my community. One of the things I always say is that you can't talk about a community that you are not actively participating in. And, and, and a lot of people finger point. And let's be honest, a lot of people that are finger pointing are not doing anything to help out with the youth or just in Milwaukee in general. They close their doors, they lock their doors, turn off their lights and stay in their own little bubble. And that's okay if you want to, you know, be safe, I understand, but you really have to do the work. And that's why I wanted to really focus on Milwaukee is because there's so many things here. I, I really do believe that Milwaukee, and I tell friends all the time, not to compare other cities, but a city like Atlanta that has a booming black population here in Milwaukee, we can do the same thing. And I believe that it's starting, you can start seeing remnants of it now. But um, there's so many people here are trying to really make this city so such an incredible space. And I want to do that for audio. I want to do that for podcasts. I want to I don't want people to gloss over Milwaukee like a lot of artists do. They come and they have their tours. My favorite artists, I'm like, are they coming to Milwaukee? We got the Pfizer. We, we, we got it. And they're in Chicago. I'm like, oh, we got to go to Chicago. All right, cool. But why not make Milwaukee a place where people not only gloss over, but actually stay, want to learn. And I think we can do that. And I, that's why Audio Moguls was created to really build up the next generation of kids, of youth um, to say, hey, I hear you. And not only do I hear you, I want you to hear yourself and I want you to record yourself. Here's a microphone and I'll teach you how to do it. I don't need to get any money from it. I don't need anything from it. I just want to show you the tools that are out there and how powerful your voice is, because I now teaching there are some incredible students out there and they really have something to say. And I want folks that are um, in all levels of government, um, levels of uh, just uh, community activism to hear our students and make sure that they have a voice and a seat at the table. Mwanje Thompson is the founder of Brilliant Voices and Audio Moguls Media. He spoke with Lake Effects Mallory Chang. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen to all of our shows on demand. And please join us again tomorrow at noon for more conversations on Lake Effect. Only on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. NPR.